KCSB FM Santa Barbara 91.9. This is Inside Isla Vista. I'm Elena Teagle with KCSB News. This is the show that shares what's happening in and around Isla Vista and the UC Santa Barbara community. Because the stages of the COVID-19 pandemic continue to be ever-changing, in today's show, I will first look into the updates that were announced at the Santa Barbara COVID-19 Response Virtual Press Conference that took place on August 5th. And then I will talk to student journalist Atmika Iyer on her experiences when it comes to updating the public on COVID-19. To start off, while it appeared that we were finally seeing the light at the end of the tunnel in terms of the pandemic in June, as July approached, there has been a rapid resurgence of COVID-19 cases due to the Delta variant. At the Santa Barbara COVID-19 Response Virtual Press Conference, Dr. Ansorg explained why the Delta variant is such a major concern for public health officials. As of June 15th, we felt comfortable to lift most public health mandates especially especially for vaccinated people. At the time, however, we were dealing with a very different version of the coronavirus. Unfortunately, the new Delta strain of this virus emerged rapidly in late June and July, causing a steep rise in cases and hospitalizations. This version of the virus is behaving very differently from previous types. Once a person is infected, Delta takes a shorter time to make the infected person ill or enable them to spread the virus without having symptoms. This incubation period is only four days for Delta compared to seven days with the previous virus. The Delta virus replicates much faster, leading to higher concentrations of virus in the infected person. It also appears to linger longer once a person is infected. It is able to lock onto the respiratory tract cells more easily and securely. All of these new features enable the Delta variant to be almost as contagious as chickenpox. Unfortunately, Delta is now able to infect even vaccinated persons who sometimes can spread it even further. As explained in the conference by Public Health Director Dr. Van Dorenoso, as of July 30th, the new cases are 3.4 times more likely to be from an unvaccinated person than one who is vaccinated. But while cases are also being contracted by, by fully vaccinated individuals, this new surge should not dilute the importance of the vaccination. On the contrary, it is a key indication that the vaccines are actually effective even against the new variant, as those who are hospitalized, such as those of older age or have weak immune systems but vaccinated, are fortunately in no need of an ICU, according to Dr. Ansorg. Also according to Dr. Dorinoso and the data presented in the meeting, 62.2% of Santa Barbara County is fully vaccinated. However, that means 144,383 eligible Santa Barbara County residents still remain unvaccinated. 
Dr. Ansorg likewise noted the difficulty in achieving herd immunity, as before the Delta variant, 70% of the population would have needed to become immune, compared to now, in which approximately 90% of the population would need to be immune to ultimately reach herd immunity. Finally, data on the transmission rates of those with known documented transmission status as of August 4th indicate that 48% of cases are a result of community transmission, 44% is due to close contact with community members, and 8% is caused by travel. With this data and the alarming case rates, Public Health released a new health officer order. So our new health officer order will be effective tomorrow, August 6th at 5 p.m. And it is mandated masking in public indoor settings, regardless of vaccination status for persons two plus years of age. We need to do this because this is a critical strategy to stem rising case rates. Uh, we will review this health officer order and guided by case rate vaccination rate, and hospitalization rate and capacity. You have been listening to Inside Isla Vista. I'm Yelena Teagle, and after looking into the updates given at the Santa Barbara COVID-19 Response Virtual Press Conference, I'll now have a chat on the experiences on reporting COVID-19 from the perspective of student journalist Atmika Iyer. As mentioned, today I have a special guest from our neighbors at the Daily Nexus. Atmika Iyer is an incoming second year and the county news editor for the 2021-22 school year. In our discussion, I got an insight into her experience covering the pandemic as a student journalist. So to start off, I know KCSB News and the Daily Nexus have been continuously providing updates on COVID-19 for over a year now. So I just wanted to ask, how has your experience been with covering such an unprecedented situation? It's been interesting because I think, I think all journalists were taken by surprise in that a lot of people whose expertise isn't necessarily infectious disease, um, a pandemic, you became a quick learner. So um, I, I actually found it quite interesting because I think you almost had to develop a, a your own uh, wealth of knowledge on a subject regardless of your prior experience. And there weren't that many journalists, you know, off the bat that were, you know, infectious disease pandemic experts or had covered that for a long time, especially student journalists, right? Like I'm, I'm sure most student journalists haven't done that. So it was in some ways it was kind of, um, very interesting because I think it provided a very unique opportunity for people to build this wealth of knowledge on a topic that uh, you're not necessarily going to get the opportunity to do ever again. Um, so, and, and you know, in terms of what that wealth of knowledge is, I'd say that it's quite expansive. It's understanding public health and public health protocols and government and government protocols and how to get messaging across quickly and effectively. 
Um, it's, so it's law, it's laws and looking at legal aspects of things. It's also looking at public health and science and that aspect of things. So it's a very unique opportunity, I think. So I, in terms of how it's been covering it, I'd say it's just been quite interesting. I think it's taught most people how to be a little bit dynamic in their reporting because the truth is the reality of today is not the reality of tomorrow and the reality of tomorrow is not the reality of the day after, right? Like the, the news about the pandemic and the pandemic itself is constantly evolving. And to some extent, because it is evolving, the information available to us too is also evolving. And so being really dynamic and on top of your work, I think is a big lesson coming out of this because one second we think, oh, we're coming out of this pandemic, vaccinations are out and cases are down. And then the next second, Miss Delta's out here wreaking havoc again. So it's sort of, you know, learning to be on your toes and learning how to evolve with the situation. Yes, the Delta variant did come by rather quickly and right when everything seemed to calm down for the most part, unfortunately. But I know you've had a lot of experience co covering COVID-19. I know you did a really co cool story on the complete COVID-19 timeline. And covering such a unique, unfortunate and continuous situation, what were some major points that you can recall, especially from the perspective of a student journalist? Yeah, so I think that the winter surge was a bad turning point for IV because up until then cases weren't too bad, um, especially for a place like Isla Vista where, you know, it's high density living. So if anything, you'd expect for there to be a lot of cases uh, in an area where sometimes isolating isn't always possible, in an area where you're with college kids, it's a large portion of the population. So for a long time, you know, Ivy was actually doing pretty well for, for what it was and the factors um, that would make the consequences that would happen happen. So until that point, we were great. And then the winter surge hit and cases went up dramatically. And this was also sort of the time I really started covering um, COVID, the pandemic in general. And so I think that was a, a turning point in the wrong direction. Um, and it sort of just showed how when various factors collide, you know, like living situations, demographics like college age students, um, and all these different things happen, you, there is potential for um, high numbers like we saw during the winter surge. So I'd say that was a, a turning point uh, in the wrong direction that I thought was really important to cover. And I think it's very important for us to remember as we head into an in-person quarter with the Delta variant still circulating. Um, another turning point I'd say is when we started heading into the uh, red tier because I think Santa Barbara County was stuck in the purple tier for a very long time. And that's not to say that our county was unique in that sense, because I think there were a lot of counties that were in a very similar situation. But in terms of morale and hope, coming into the red was a pivotal moment because it was no longer, you know, the attitude or the emotion or the morale was no longer 
we're in the purple. We have to stay stuck in the purple. It's just the reality of the situation. It's, hey, we got to the red tier. So why not, why not head into that orange tier and then maybe the yellow tier? And so I think coming into the red was a pivotal moment because it was sort of this attitude of like, oh no, we can do this. We got this, you know, as a community, we have the ability to bring down these metrics um, and be and, and help our county be a safer place, right? Um, and that's not to say that we can control the pandemic, but obviously there are certain aspects of our behavior that uh, we can control to mitigate the spread of the virus. So I think in terms of pivotal moments, the winter surge was one, uh, the, uh, definitely the um, coming into the red tier. And then I would also say uh, when vaccinations were open to uh, college age uh, people, when it was open to everyone 16 and above. And I think that was uh, sometime around mid-April. So uh, correct me if I'm wrong on that one. But yeah, so I, I'd yeah. say in terms of um, pivotal moments, those three were, were fairly big. And lastly, I think there's just so much information and data that goes into the stories regarding COVID-19 that it sometimes could feel overwhelming to see how much you could actually include in the story, which I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm presented with so much information, it's kind of hard to figure out what to include and exclude because you obviously want to inform the public to the best of your ability, but you also don't want it to be really unorganized and just overwhelming. Um, so when you are reporting on COVID-19, is there anything that you include specifically to ensure that your reader is gaining valuable information on COVID-19 without any unnecessary confusion? That's a good question. And it sort of depends on the scenario is what I would say. Um, so in, in situations where cases were clearly getting worse, I think it was important to include the why. Um, why is it getting worse? Um, what are the various factors causing that? And when it's getting better, I think it was also important to include that as well. Why is it getting better? Is it that vaccinations are increasing? Is it that you know people are just being safer? Is what, what caused this is always something I like to think about. I think, uh, but I, but I, I think the main thing I really like to think about is because we've been covering all of this for, you know, as long as the pandemic has been happening, we are now in the world of pandemic public health jargon. And so we sometimes can pick up on things that seem very convoluted to the average reader who maybe hasn't spent as much time covering public health and, and all these different things that at this point we've just grown accustomed to. Because, you know, unlike us, not everyone is going to be wasting, no, I wouldn't say wasting, but spending 24 by seven looking at the news or spending time listening to public health leaders, people have jobs and things to be doing. So I think it's really trying to take those core ideas of what's happening and conveying it to the reader in a way that they can understand what's going on without having to deal with the jargon or having to understand, well, this is what this means and this is what they mean by that, you know, it's sort of trying to make sure they don't need Google Translate open for every sentence you're writing. So I think that that's probably the biggest thing is trying to make this very convoluted, very dense subject matter easily uh, read, easily understood. 
Atmika was also an attendee at the press conference, so now I want to highlight the insightful questions that she asked public health, which included topics on altering fall plans, the high-density living situation and IV, and how the new variant will affect such living conditions, and a question regarding any steps that the community should take to mitigate the spread of COVID-19. In our discussion, Atmika explained to me what encouraged her to ask these questions, to provide valuable and up-to-date information on the ever-changing pandemic to her audience. I asked about altering fall plans because, at least personally, I have always felt that this pandemic has put all foreseeable plans in uh, limbo, in a state of uncertainty. Um, and I say that as someone, you know, who graduated from high school during a pandemic, someone who spent their freshman year in a pandemic, um, because there was a point in time where, you know, you thought fall quarter, we might get housing and then housing contracts were can canceled. And then, you know, there were just brief moments of, of hope throughout this entire thing that were very quickly dashed because of, you know, the circumstances surrounding the pandemic. And as Delta picks up again, at least personally, I'm feeling a little bit uncertain as to future plans because it's because we're seeing a scenario where, you know, college kids are going to be in person again. I understand there's a mask mandate and a vaccine mandate, but all that being said, just because kids are vaccinated in a classroom doesn't mean they're or, and masked in a classroom doesn't mean they're going to be wearing masks when they go out with their friends, when they're hanging out at a party, when they're at a kickback. And that's slightly terrifying when you consider the amount of people coming to Ivy in the fall. So in terms of high density, I think that the motivation behind that question is that the living situations in Isla Vista are very college student-esque. And what I mean by that is you're in a dorm where it's a triple or a double and you know you and your roommate do not necessarily not share a lot of spaces there's not any space unique to you and then you look at a lot of houses or apartments these are college kids trying to save money these aren't college kids that are living by themselves these are college kids that are living with sometimes as many as you know 10 different roommates you know if there's a five bedroom house there's either there's like two or three kids per room so oftentimes if someone were to get COVID, isolation is not necessarily um, possible at all. It's not a um, scenario where you can isolate yourself and 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 you know have that be the end. You self quarantine and no one else gets COVID. And especially in a scenario where we're dealing with a increasingly prevalent variant that's more infectious, it becomes a greater question, right, of um, if it is the case that we live in high density living and there's this really contagious variant, well, more contagious than uh, the original few strains, how can you make it so that students can quarantine, so that we aren't necessarily making it so that an entire household has to deal with the consequences of one person getting COVID? And then the final question I believe I asked was about um, what the what the manual for um, addressing COVID looks like 
now that there's no longer a tier system. And uh, I'm not gonna lie, that was also a, a, just a question I was personally curious about because the truth is when the tier system exists, we had this very straightforward system, right? Like you hit these metrics and here's the consequence. And that's not necessarily the case anymore because the tier system is no longer in play for better or for worse. I'm not a public health expert, so I couldn't tell you if it's better or worse. Um, but now when Delta's picking up, I, I don't know what public health can do beyond a mask mandate. And I don't, I'm not saying that in the sense of like, oh, there's nothing else they can do. It's, I just don't know. And I'm sure that's something the public wants to know too, right? Like when the tier system in California no longer exists, what are the necessary steps to be taken moving forward to start decreasing the spread of the virus? What are the consequences? Is it metric based? What are the signs that tell us that further action needs to be taken, right? Like these were very clear cut in Governor Newsom's uh, blueprint for a better economy, uh, which was the tier system. And that's not necessarily, that's a system we're going by now. Um, and so when we don't know what tomorrow is gonna look like, when we don't know how Delta is going to behave or what's gonna happen with it, when we do know that, according to uh, Dr. Ansorg, that with the Delta variant, herd immunity is now actually at 90% is what we need. Well, what are we doing to, one, mitigate the spread, and two, get there, right? Those protocols, those next steps, there's no longer a tier system that exists that reflects the answers to those questions. And so it was sort of wanting to understand, um, well, what are we going to do? Yes, um, definitely. When you asked that, I also became curious on what basis or how could we measure our success? If not the tears, then what? Um, but now that we wrap up this discussion, is there anything else you would like to add on that we perhaps didn't address or any final remarks? Get vaccinated. Uh, <laughs> pretty please with a cherry on top. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, I think if you've gotten vaccinated, then maybe speak to your friends and family who haven't and try to maybe address their concerns, whatever they may be. And hopefully let's get to a place where 90% doesn't seem that um, impossible. I couldn't have said it better myself. Again, as mentioned by Dr. Dorinoso, as of August 6, everyone is required to wear masks in shared indoor spaces regardless of vaccination status. Finally, trained public health ambassadors are free to answer any questions about COVID-19 basics, such as up-to-date recommendations, vaccine information, campus resources, and well-being resources at the COVID-19 information station at the corner of Pardal and Maracedo del Norte on Tuesdays and Thursdays from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. A special thanks to Atmika Iyer from The Daily Nexus, who I've also had the privilege of working with for Unmasking Isla Vista, a COVID-19 community archive. If you do not know about it, Unmasking Isla Vista is a collaboration between KCSB News and The Daily Nexus, in which we explore how COVID-19 has impacted the different corners of Isla Vista life over the past year and a half. 
Each week, we will be bringing you an article from the Daily Nexus and a KCSB podcast on subjects from testing and vaccines, community activism, community reflection, and much more. To listen to past episodes, visit dailynexus.com or kcsb.org. And if you would like to receive the weekly newsletter but are not yet subscribed to this mailing list, feel free to head to kcsb.org to enter your email address at the bottom of the homepage. Taking the updates one step at a time, we will continue to cover COVID-19. And remember, you've been listening to Inside Isla Vista. The theme music is Siesta by Jazar. And thank you for tuning in Wednesdays at 5 p.m. to find out what's going in and around Isla Vista. I'm Elena Teagle, and this is 91.9 KCSB.